Well, good morning. Hey, welcome to Bridgewater. We're glad you're here. My name is Matt. It's a joy of being the campus pastor uh, here. And I just wanted to reiterate what they said in the feed about kids' resources. If you're looking for some gifts uh, this Easter to give out to, uh, to your grandkids or to your kids, nieces, nephews, whatever, uh, there's some great resources back there. I just wanted to highlight one of them uh, this morning, the Jesus Storybook Bible. Uh, if you haven't seen this one, it's got some really uh, cool stories, cool illustrations as it kind of wraps up the whole uh, Bible in a way that little ones can understand. And um, the, probably two months ago or so, three months ago, I got a picture from my wife. She was sitting at her table reading the Bible, and across the room was Jocko, uh, my two-year-old, sitting over there reading his Bible, and uh, he knows this is his Bible. He runs and grab it, grabs it, and he's really interested in the animals that he can find in the Bible currently. Um, but what I, wanted to, what I wanted to share that with you is never underestimate how early God's love can begin to impact our kids and your grandkids. Never underestimate how early getting in God's word uh, can start to bring into uh, memory and recall God and his character to the little ones. So if you're looking for one, they're out there in the, the kids' wing on your way out. I would encourage you to go look at those. There's a ton of options out there. <clears throat> well, if you're just joining us, uh, we are in week three of our series called In Tune. Uh, we're wrestling with and looking at what does it mean to walk in a deeper re- relationship with God? How do we grow to know him more, to be closer to him, to have our hearts in tune with him in such a way that it brings about the life we desire? And so week one, we talked uh, specifically about what it looks like uh, through prayer and fasting to create space in our life to actually be with God, that God is trying to speak to us through his word and through prayer, uh, and that we would be able to create space to quiet out the noise and to do that. That was week one. Then week two, we said that our problems can so often uh, get in the way of us effectively hearing from God and how worship helps us uh, quiet the voice of the enemy and raise the voice of God in our life, that we could hear him, overcome our problems, and find him. And um, we've been working with this definition of tune that we would bring into harmony our relationship with God. We would follow uh, his word and how to do that. And then tune that we would to adjust for precise function, intensity, and effectiveness, that we would tune our hearts for an effective prayer life, an effective spiritual life. And it's really all being driven by this promise that came out of James chapter four, verse eight, which was that if we would come near to God, he would come near to us. That from the very beginning of creation, God's desire has, to, has been to be near his creation. That he wants to be in relationship with you. He created Adam and Eve and he walked in the garden with them. He was near them. And that desire for God has not changed. However, sin has broken our relationship because he is a holy God. And because of sin, there's separation. That is why Jesus had to go to the cross to pay for our sin. And here's the good news. The promise that God wants to be near you and I is still true today. James chapter four was written long after the Garden of Eden happened and God still wants to be near you. We recognize that and say, okay, God, we want to respond to you and we also want to be near to you because we understand that when we're near to you, we receive abundant life because that's what you've promised us. And so uh, that's what we've been working through this series. And I wanted to bring this verse up to your attention again because we're going to talk about some heavy stuff today. I'm just going to be transparent with you. We are going to be a little bit in your business. Uh, So if you're a guest, welcome. Not every week feels like this, but uh, this is how the word of God works. It reveals things and speaks to us. But we have to hang on this promise of James today because uh, as we uh, talk through this conversation, you're going to have to remind yourself we are having this conversation because we want to draw near to a holy and righteous God. And so that's the conversation this week. Uh, uh, In light of that as well, if you aren't familiar with kind of the 
Christian calendar. This week is what uh, many call Passion Week or Holy Week. Uh, today is Palm Sunday. It's the triumphant day that we remember, or the day we remember Jesus' triumphant entry into Jerusalem, uh, where he was met with fanfare from those who believed he really was the coming Messiah. So that's what today uh, celebrates. But what we're going to talk about today really kind of spans the whole week uh, in concept, because from today until Friday, um, a lot happened in the life of Jesus and his time on earth. And this coming Friday is what we know historically as Good Friday, although there was nothing good about it until Sunday happened. But uh, this week really is a week of revealing. And so as we contemplate this week leading up to Easter, uh, many, many, many things were revealed over the course of this week. Uh, in fact, I want to list out a few things to you of what really took place during this week. You see, Jesus during this week was revealed as the king of the Jews. He had been talking about this, and finally there was this group of people that kind of believed it, which is why they laid down palm branches, and they celebrated that the long-awaited Messiah had come, and and he uh, is revealed as the king of the Jews, and ultimately the king of humanity, but this is what is revealed in this week. Also, the disciples were revealed for who they really were. We'll talk about this at length later, but um, there was uh, so much about who they were and their hearts and their motivations that just became incredibly transparent uh, and, uh, and evident during this week. Mary and Martha were also revealed for who they were. Uh, you see them as perhaps the most courageous, faithful of the bunch. Truth about Judas came out and what his heart was really all about. You also see the truth about Pontius Pilate revealed. Uh, you can go to the next slide. As you look at uh, the story where he basically washes his hand, you see what kind of leader he is. He wants his power. He wants political favor. He wants people to like him. So he never gets off the fence about Jesus. He just pretends to wash his hands like he's guilt, uh, guiltless in the whole situation while condemning Jesus to certain death. The truth about the Jewish people came out. They didn't really want what Jesus was offering. They wanted political power. They wanted preeminence. They wanted a king who was going to come squash their enemy, not a king who was telling them to lay down their life for the enemy. And ultimately, the truth about the distant followers of Jesus was revealed. That those who were around and were fans, they saw Jesus go and die a death on a criminal's cross, said, we're out of here. And they realized what Jesus was asking of them, and they left. But we're going to come back to this, this story of the, the Passion Week at the end of our time together. But this list makes me ask a question, and I think it's a good one for us to consider this morning, is what do you do when you find out the truth about someone? What do you do when something about them is revealed? You find out who they really are, and who they are isn't quite who you expected them to be. Now, granted, sometimes this is positive. Sometimes you get to see somebody or observe somebody in a really difficult situation, and you get to watch their character shine. And you get to be impressed and endeared to them because you find out deep down they're a really, really solid person. But then others of us had had another experience where the truth comes out about somebody and that's why you're no longer married to them. The truth came out and that's why you're no longer in business together. The, The truth comes out and that's why you're no longer in that environment. You see, sometimes there's this veil in our life that we hide behind and occasionally that veil gets removed. And what do you do when that happens? Well, there's kind of four big things that happens in human nature when we find out an uncomfortable reality or truth about someone. And the the simplest one is we just start to put some distance there. You maybe all of a sudden can't make dinner on Thursday or you see the phone call and all of a sudden you're busy and you just start to put some distance because now that you really know 
you're not sure if you want to be too close to that person. Maybe there's some disassociation. George who? Nope. Never dated him. Don't know what you're talking about. Huh? Nope. Don't recognize that number, right? We just start to pretend uh, like some of those things don't exist. Why? Because we don't want to deal with what the truth revealed. And then there's some shame. It's not enough just to put distance and disassociation. We start to talk bad about them. Did you hear what so-and-so did? I can't believe it. And maybe we take this to social media and, and we begin to talk about in some tone like we've never been there ourselves or we wouldn't sin like that. So we just start to throw shame on people when we discover who they really are. And then there's kind of the culmination of outrage that we become indignant and angry. How could they, how dare they when yet another pastor, yet another leader, yet another organization, it kind of brings in this rage. But let's make this personal for us this morning. What if someone found out the truth about you? What if the veil was removed in your life? What if the inner thoughts of your heart and mind were put on the screen here this morning for the room to see? Now we're uncomfortable. Now we don't like this as much. See, what we need to consider is the fact that we actually do the same thing to ourselves in fear of the truth coming out when we see who we really are that we do to other people. Here's what I mean. When there's a truth about yourself that you don't want to get out or there's an emotional uh, problem or you have thoughts and feelings that you hate, what do you do? Well, you create distance. You begin to put distance between yourself and those emotions. You begin to ignore them. You begin to not allow yourself to feel them. And then you also put distance between you and people. We begin to put up these walls and we keep people at an arm's length because we don't want them to find out who we really are. And so we uh, give non-answers to really important questions. Hey, how are you? How are you doing? Oh, we're good. Busy. But we're good. How's your marriage? Oh, you know. No, I don't know. That's why I'm asking. <laughs> but that non-answer, what is it? It's distance. I don't want you to know the truth because I'm afraid of it. And then there's shame. Many of us live in low-grade shame about ourselves. We're beating ourselves up because we can't believe we did it. We can't believe we're still doing it. And so we just kind of walk around with our heads hung low. And some of us can do a better job pepping ourselves up, but it's there. It eats away at our joy. And then there's outrage. Furious at yourself that you did it again. You begin to punish yourself, beat up on yourself. Wherever you are in that spectrum, whether you disassociate and get busy or you just kind of deal with the shame or it expresses itself in anger towards yourself, which ultimately ends up bleeding out onto other people, what do we do with it? Certainly that is not the good and right design in which God has given us. Well, I think what we often tend to do, and I'm throwing myself under the bus here this morning, is we just try to pretend we put on faces and we, we do the right things and we kind of know cultural expectations of how to not make too much noise so people don't look too closely at our lives. And we try to fool people. But what if I were to tell you this morning it's not working? Now you might and we might have people fooled, but we don't have God fooled. Listen to what David said in Psalms 139. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn there with me. We're going to be in a few places, but I want you to see Psalms 139 for yourself. Psalms 139, uh, listen to what David says. says, You have searched me, verse 1, you have searched me, Lord, and you know me. 
You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you, Lord, know it completely. David says, man, I might have some people around me fooled, but God knows every thought I've ever had. He knows every motive I've ever felt. He knows the words I'm going to say completely before I ever say them, which means he knows even the future sins we're going to commit. Now, it's not like somebody of low consequence found out the truth about you, right? It's not like a nosy neighbor peeked over the fence and noticed that you were burning a campfire when there's a burn ban or that your wife found out you actually secretly hate her meatloaf that she cooks every Thursday or that your boss found out you were scrolling through Facebook while you were in a meeting. It's not like somebody of little consequence figured out everything about you. The God of the universe, the creator of the heavens and earth, the key holder to eternity knows every thought, every intention, every motive we have ever had. Now, what does that do to our relationship with God? What happens when God searches us and what he discovers is sin? What does that do to our relationship? Well, listen to what David said in a different Psalm, Psalm chapter 66. You can stay in Psalms 139. I'll put this up here, but Psalm 66, 18 said, if I had cherished sin in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. So if I recognized and I saw that there was sin in my life and I wasn't dealing with it, I, I knew it was wrong. I was unwilling to repent of it that my prayer life would come to a screeching halt, that my connection to God would be disrupted here. And this is true for all of us in the room, whether we are a follower of Jesus or not. The breakdown in our relationship to God always has been sin from the very beginning because he is a holy and righteous God. And sin is not just a choice of selfishness. It is a a choice of pure rebellion against God. And so uh, if you're here, the breakdown in your relationship with God uh, and you're not yet a follower of Jesus is the need to repent of your sin. But that is also true for us as followers of God. That we've maybe accepted the free gift of salvation, but somewhere down the road, we've allowed sin to come into our life and we recognize it and we see it and we're not willing to repent of it for whatever reason. Maybe there's a lack of humility to recognize it as your fault. Uh, maybe there, there's some pride in there. Maybe there's some shame in there that you don't want to uh, bring it out to the light. But here, here's what I want us to see. That unrepentant sin creates barriers in our connections to God. He said, if I had cherished sin in my heart. Now, here's the distinction you need to understand. There is a difference between a, sinner, or a Christian who is struggling with sin and walking in repentance and confession. That is far different than somebody who claims to be a Christian and yet cherishes, protects and even defends their sinful life. You see the distinction there? He's saying, if I saw it, and even went as much as to try to hide it, my relationship with God is going to suffer greatly. And that is perhaps what some of us have been feeling. That our relationship with God isn't the life-giving thing we expected, or it's not quite like it used to be. And maybe this will help us understand. Yesterday was April Fool's, and apparently the weather knows to play April Fool's jokes Um, But I got my hose out yesterday and discovered that every single hose on my property looks like this. And I'm not sure what was wrong with me in the fall, but they're all a mess. And I also have a bone to pick with whoever makes hoses. We've put a man on the moon and we can't make a hose that works. All right. I'm just saying 
But what happens? It's, it's springtime, you're getting ready to go uh, water your garden, and you go and you plug your hose in, and you turn the spigot on, and you go and you squeeze the nozzle, and nothing happens, right? So what do you do? Well, you inspect the hose. You go back to the source. You go back to the spigot. Did I actually turn it on? Did the line freeze inside? All right. It's on, and it's flowing, and you go back to the handle, and you squeeze it, and nothing happens. Well, you turn around, and you look, and you realize that there are these wonderful things in your hose known as a kink, or whatever word you want to use for I'm going to throw it out there. And you know what happens is every time you get rid of one, another one shows up farther down the line, right? Well, I want you to consider this in light of your spiritual life. When you feel a disruption in your spiritual walk, you don't feel the life-giving presence of the Lord moving in you. You have to go back and begin to ask the question at the source. Is the source good? Am I connected to the source? Do I have a relationship with God in the first place? Yes, I do. Okay, well, then I have to rest on the character of God. Has God's desire for me to experience abundant life changed? No. Has God's desire for me to be free of sin? No, it hasn't changed. He still desires that for us. Okay, well, the source is good. But somewhere along the line, I've allowed sin to disrupt my relationship with the Holy Spirit. Okay, well, then what do you do? You have to examine, you have to go back, and you have to reset what is broken. And listen, we know this to be true in our natural relationships, don't we? Like when my wife and I fight, shocker, your pastor has arguments with his wife. I know. I know. You can pray for me. But what happens when my wife and I are in a disagreement, and I say something stupid, which I never do, but I, you know, occasionally will say something stupid, and I hurt her, and I fend her, and it's genuine. Do I expect my relationship just to continue on with all the joy and life that it could have after I've just been a jerk to her? No, of course I don't. Why? Because sin broke something. It broke trust. It broke relationship. It broke all of those things. It is only when I go back, examine my sin, acknowledge that I hurt her, reset and restore what was broken through changed behavior, that that relationship is restored. And so it is true with God. He wants us in a real relationship, which means our sin has an ability to break that relationship. But with God, it's actually worse. Because it's not just when we offend God, it's when we offend and hurt his children. You see, when I sin against my wife, I'm also sinning against God because that's his daughter. And it gets even worse. And I know this one's hard to believe, but when my wife sins against me, and I'm unwilling to forgive her because of pride, because of resentment, because of bitterness, whatever it might be, that also disrupts my relationship with God. Listen to what Jesus said in Mark chapter 11. He said, when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them so that your Father in heaven may forgive you your sins. You see, unforgiveness creates barriers in my connection to God too. You can throw this up there. So did you hear what he said though? If you're praying, if you're trying to seek God and you have an offense against a brother and sister, offense against your wife, offense against somebody at church, God says, stop praying and go be spiritual and forgive. Go be spiritual and repent. You can't hide behind the guise of praying because God says, I'm not listening (laughs) until you do the spiritual thing, which is model what Jesus did at the cross which was forgive when others have forgiven or sinned against you. Well, that's really uncomfortable now. What do we do? 
What do you do when you examine your heart and you see the fact that there might be some bitterness and unforgiveness? There might be some immorality and some, there might be some of that. Well, actually, rather than running and hiding, which is human nature, I want you to read what David did and said at the end of Psalms 139, the Psalms we started in. Here's, here's what David does when he realizes the reality of his heart. He said, search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Not only did David not run from that moment, he invited that moment into his life. I want to read this to you. It's not on the screen, but I want to read this to you out of the message because I think it hits for us. It said, investigate my life, O God. Find out everything about me. Cross-examine and test me. Get a clear picture of what I'm about. See for yourself whether I've done anything wrong. Then guide me on the road to eternal life. He said, God, would you come in and inspect my heart? God, I invite the spotlight in. Would you reveal any sin that's hiding in me? Would you reveal and expose anything that is disrupting our relationship? And can I tell you how scary that moment can feel? If you do not trust the character of God. See, but if you know the source of life, you know that in that moment, what, he, what you are inviting him to do is remove things that are damaging you, to damaging your relationship and robbing you of joy. When I begin to sin, see sin clearly, I realize that it's not actually what I want. <laughs> it's like going to the doctors, suspicious that you might have cancer and trying to pretend the whole time that you don't have cancer. <laughs> It'd be silly when you know the doctor could solve the problem. He could re remove the issue. And so in front of you, actually, there's some pieces of paper. If you're in the front row, I apologize. We'll get you one here in a minute. But in the back of the chairs, there's this white piece of paper. I want everyone to grab it for me. We've created this tool for you to help you do the very thing that David did. He said, search me, God, know me, reveal to me. Well, here's a document we've created out of that passage. And here's what I want you to do. Before you start reading it, I want your attention real quick. You gotta be prayerful through this. One of the biggest things that we, we need to do is ask God to reveal, ask God to show, not that we would show ourselves because we can either give ourselves a free pass or be too hard on ourselves. And so we have to invite God into this space. But here we've given you, you can look now, it's okay. Here we've given you 14 questions. And these are not an exhaustive list of questions. These are simply some of the big things that we see throughout the course of scripture that would uh, be sin in our life that we need to deal with, that would disrupt our uh, relationship with God. And so as you go through this, you'll see there's some questions there. Is there anyone I have not forgiven? Uh, do I have a pattern of being dishonest? Do I gossip or grumble about others? Um, and, and you'll see this. And here's, here's my recommendation. I don't want you to fill it out now. Um, I would love for you to spend some time this week. Create some space, sit with the Lord and say, all right, God, is this true in my life? Is this in here? And then be honest with yourselves. Why? Because if we're honest with ourselves, he can start to do the work he's been waiting to do in our life the whole time. That if we stop pretending and he sees us, he can heal us. And then on the backside of this paper, I want you to flip over and you'll see Psalms 51. I left the headline of the Psalms in here because I think it's really important. That the Psalms of David... When the prophet Nathan came to him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. Okay? If you're not familiar with the story, the king of Israel finds a woman he likes. They do what they do. He feels guilty about it, gets her pregnant, tries to hide it, murders a man, 
her husband and thinks he gets away with it. He tried to hide it. And then the prophet comes in and confronts him on it. And this is the, the Psalms that David writes in response to that. So listen, uh, if you're feeling guilty this morning uh, about what's on the front side of this paper, I didn't ask if you did what David did, okay? Guilty man over here. And yet these are the words that he penned. Have mercy on me, O God. According to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. I want you to notice verse one there. He based this whole plea to forgiveness, not on his character, but on God's. Your unfailing love, your great compassion. So here's what I would encourage you to do. After you go through the front of this page, turn over to the back and just begin to pray out Psalm 51. God, would you forgive me? God, would you wash me? God, would you cleanse me? And I know this can feel scary, especially if in the back of your mind, you already know what he's going to reveal to you. But here's what I would say. You can't have real relationship without being known. You can't have real relationship without being known. Go ahead and throw that up there, John. Now we can pretend. Now we can fake. But you won't experience the life-giving joy that Jesus has for you until you go, here I am, God. All of me to all of you the broken mess and everything, here it is. And here's why I said we had to cling to the promise of James chapter four, that if we would come near to God, he would come near to us because in this moment, we can feel like we want to run. But what I want you to see, and Jesus demonstrates this through uh, this week of the Holy Week, which is why we're talking about it. What happens when Jesus discovers everything about a person? See, Jesus demonstrated for us what he does when he knows everything about a person. I want you to consider the Last Supper. This Friday is when it took place. At that Last Supper, he's sitting around a table with a bunch of disciples who he invited into a real relationship. They walked with him. They ate with him. They worked with him. They solved problems with him. There was nothing about these guys that was hidden from Jesus. He knew everything about them, and he invites them into this meal, and his very last uh, meal with them, just hours away from going to the cross. But I want you to consider who is around that table. Because sitting probably somewhere across from Jesus was a man named Judas, if you're not familiar with Judas, he was the treasurer who had been stealing and had just been a very corrupt man. And then goes and sells Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. And here's the thing, Jesus knew it. And in fact, he looked at Judas and said, go do what you're going to do. You see, he knew Judas' sin. Problem was, it wasn't just Judas. Because earlier, James and John were walking around and they ran up to Jesus and they were arguing and said, how do we get to the right hand of the throne of God? How do we get to the seat of power? And Jesus rebuked him like, you missed this whole thing. Like I'm the king of the universe and I'm going to the cross and you want to know how you get to the seat of power? And so he confronts him and you know what they did? They blamed their mom. See, he knew their motives too. He knew what was really inside of their hearts. And then there's Thomas, this guy who's followed Jesus. He's watched miracles. He's watched the feeding of the 5,000. And 
yet when Jesus tells him he's going to the cross to be killed for our sins and he's going to resurrect, he doesn't believe him. And in fact, he's looking at the resurrected Jesus in a couple days and goes, I don't believe it. It wasn't until he put his hands into the holes from where the nails were that he finally believed. You see, he knew Thomas's doubt. Then there's Peter. Stands up boldly and says, I don't know what's going to happen with all these losers around me, but uh, I'm going to stand firm to the end and I'm never running away until a middle school girl confronts him. And he denies Jesus not once, not twice, but three times. You see, he knew Peter's fear. And then there's the rest of them. After Jesus goes to the cross, they realize what a terrible experience that was, being killed uh, as a criminal. And so they run into a room and they lock themselves in in fear of being next. You see, he knew their lack of faith. You see, Jesus knew everything about every individual. And what does he do? He leans in. And more than leaning in, he does something incredibly powerful. Matthew chapter 26. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, take and eat. This is my body. Imagine this moment. You're sitting around a whole bunch of people, one who's going to sell you for money, one who's going to doubt every word you ever said, one who's going to deny you even existed. And he says, hey, Peter, I know who you are, and I know what you're going to do. Here's my body broken for you. Hey, Thomas, I know that you don't doubt, you don't believe in me and that you're going to have a really hard time with this. Hey, here's my body broken for you. Hey, Judas, James, John, the rest of you, here's my sacrifice on your behalf. Take this. I will be punished for you. Then he took the cup. When he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, drink from it, who? All of you. All of you. This is the blood of my covenant, blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many, for the forgiveness of sins. He gave the cup to Judas, and he gave the cup to Thomas, and he gave the cup to James and to John. What do we see? That when Jesus discovers everything about you, what he does is he moves towards you in compassion, grace, and mercy, and overwhelming love. That he knows the secrets of your heart, and yet he went to the cross for you. He knows what you do in secret, and yet he went to the cross for you. He knows the bitterness and rage that lives inside of your life, and yet he went to the cross for you. He knows what you do when nobody else is looking, and yet he went to the cross for you. He knows everything about you, and what he did was he went and died the death we all deserved. See, while sin creates the barriers between us and God, God would not settle at that. In fact, what we see is that God's love breaks down the barriers that sin creates. God's love moves past our sin. God's love overcomes it all. And so here's the question for us this morning. Will you let him? Because what separated the men at that table was their response when they were revealed for who they really were. When Judas knew he was exposed, he ran in shame and never came back to the feet of Jesus. When Peter was revealed for who he really was, Jesus came back to him and he responded to Jesus's invitation to come back. That's the difference.
because we all have sin. The question is, will we let Jesus overcome it and restore us not only to right relationship, but life and life abundant? Are you ready to let him break down the barriers in your life? Are you ready to hand over the sin that you've been hiding? Are you ready to be really known by God? And if you're here and you've never made that decision, we would love uh, to help you do that in a few minutes. If you're here, I want to invite you into a space. I'm going to invite the band up here now. I want to invite us all into a space here this morning where we could pause. We could consider, we could ask the questions that David asked in Psalms 139. As we are going to take communion in a few minutes, we need to examine our hearts and say, God, is there anything in me that is offensive to you? God, is there any sin that is in the way? And then, God, would you lead me to the way of everlasting? So I want to read to us here this morning Psalms 139. I invite you to remain seated through this time and just spend some time praying. And here's what I would encourage you to pray. Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in the way of everlasting. God, we ask in this moment right now that you would examine our hearts and you'd send us to the feet of the cross for grace, mercy, and forgiveness.